Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we visit a beloved and admittedly tiny tourist attraction near Morrison that's reopening just in time for the long weekend. I think it's neat to see how much work must have gone into each one of these buildings, uh, even though they're tiny. Plus, we hear the story of how a team of paleontologists from Denver came to find pieces of one of Colorado's most famous dinosaurs hidden away in some cardboard boxes. That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Last October, a team of paleontologists from Denver found treasure hidden in four cardboard boxes held together with some yellowed packing tape. As it turned out, those boxes were nearly overflowing with bits and pieces of one of Colorado's most famous dinosaurs, known as Pops. KUNC's Ray Solomon has the story of how the missing bones went from a Weld County display case into dusty boxes and back out again. Now you could say that the story of Pops the Triceratops and those boxes full of him began nearly 40 years ago. February of 1982, Emmett Evanoff is a professor of geology at the University of Northern Colorado. Back in grad school, he was friends with a guy named Ken Carpenter, who went on to have a storied career in paleontology. One day, Carpenter asked Evanoff for a hand in the field. They went to a site northeast of Greeley to poke around for microfossils. Ken's kind of a funny guy. He uh, is very serious when he's out in the field, really intense, and he's looking around. He doesn't get really excited. I was watching Ken, and all of a sudden he stopped, he looked down, and he started jumping around. And I thought, hmm, Ken found something. It was the tip of the frill of the most complete skull of any horned dinosaur ever found in the state. So it might be more accurate to say that the story really began more than 68 million years ago. Think of Greeley underneath water. Of course, the whole state of Colorado was underwater. And then slowly, uh, we ended up with lowland rivers in the area. And that's where the deposits of the dinosaurs occurred. This is the last part of the Cretaceous period, or the very tail end of the very long age of the dinosaurs. So we sat there for an hour or two just cleaning it up and getting exposed at the surface on that on that day. And then a couple days later, they came back with a huge truck and unearthed the dinosaur and took it away. Terry Demoni now lives in Greeley. Back in 82, her father, Sonny Mapelli, owned the land where the fossil was found. They didn't tell them that they were coming, that they found a dinosaur head, so they just came back and took it. And when my dad heard what happened, he wanted it back. But Sonny was a civic-minded guy, a businessman and former state senator who took a lot of pride in his adopted community in northern Colorado. So he donated the skull to county leaders. And he wanted to stay here so that other children and families could all learn about it and actually have something here in Weld County. Triceratops t-shirts were printed for the occasion. There was even a public contest to name it. Pops ultimately won out. And a declaration making it the official Weld County fossil. Communications director Jennifer Finch says the donation came with just one condition. That that fossil would remain in Weld County in a county building so that's all the public could come in and see it. And that's how Pops ended up behind glass in the fluorescent-lit lobby of the Weld County Administrative Building. In a not-so-dignified way, it was how we told people where the restrooms were. Because we tell them, go out to the lobby, 
<laughs> and they're right by the dinosaur. Decades later, Pop's glory had faded. The 1980s era epoxies holding him together were discolored. He had never been fully restored, and the whole display was sorely out of date. That's where Joe Sertich enters the story. He used to visit Pops when he was an undergrad studying paleontology at Colorado State University. The skeleton and skull of Pops were known by paleontologists for decades, so it's kind of been this unicorn of a dinosaur that's out there that we know is significant. Dr. Sertich is now curator of dinosaurs at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Even then, he had his doubts if Pops was really a triceratops at all. For one, the skull was small. It was the size of a juvenile, but... As you look a little closer, you can tell from the texture of the bone that it's an adult. And then there's the Laramie Rock formation that it came out of. It's about two million years older than other triceratops specimens. But no one's had access to study because uh, it was in this kind of gray area between museums and hiding up in a public facility. So, in 2018, he reached out to Jennifer Finch, who helped arrange a deal. They would study Pops in Denver and then bring him back to Weld County, expertly cleaned and restored. The team came up to take measurements last October, and that's when they found those four boxes. Inside, there were pieces of bone that helped complete the skull. There were other parts, too, like vertebrae and pieces of tailbone. So we have Pops in every corner of the lab right now back in the fossil lab, preparator Salvador Bastian bends over the skull with an air scribe. It's sort of like a tiny air-powered jackhammer. So we're just using this to remove the plaster cleanly from the fossil so that we can see all of the actual bone and study the true shape of what this animal would look like in life. And so far, they've uncovered a little nub of bone that gives this nearly 40-year-old story or is it a 68 million year old story? New life. This is a weird flange in the nostril. The shape of that flange suggests that Dr. Sertage is right. The Weld Triceratops isn't a Triceratops at all. This big, wide, flat flange is something that you see in Eotriceratops, but not so much in a true Triceratops. The team can't definitively identify Pops until they've finished reconstructing the skull, but they just might have a whole new species on their hands. There are a couple of pages currently missing from that story um, at different time intervals, and this is one of those missing pages. So for the first time, we can look at what the world was like 68 or 69 million years ago here in Colorado. It will take Dr. Sertich and his team a few more months to finish the restoration. They'll make casts of the skull and publish their findings. Then Pops will be returned to Weld County. Jennifer Finch is looking forward to that day. The skull may come back actually a bit bigger than when it left. And if that's the case, we may have to talk about getting a different display case. And maybe a new location, she says, further away from the bathrooms. Ray Solomon, KUNC. We reached out to Denver Museum of Nature and Science dinosaur curator Joe Sertich for an update. He told us the restoration process is proceeding on schedule and the team is hoping to return to the original site Pops once called home later this summer to look for more evidence of his ancient world. And like many of us coming out of pandemic quarantine, it looks like Pops will soon re-enter public spaces. The team hopes to have the skull back on display in Greeley by the fall.
As more people get vaccinated and pandemic restrictions continue to ease, many Coloradans are looking forward to getting together with family and friends in person over the Memorial Day weekend. If it's been a while and you're not sure what you want to put on the table or on the grill, we're going to bring you two perspectives that might help you decide. First, we're going to talk with a local rancher. Aaron Rice is owner and operator of Jodar Farms, a pasture-raised meat operation in Wellington. He spoke with us about how small, sustainable operations like his fit into Colorado's agriculture industry. Start by telling us a little bit about your farm. How big is it? What do you raise? Where does your operation fit in? in the larger meat production landscape in the state? So we have run a small family farm just uh, just north of Fort Collins in Wellington. Um, we have about 70 acres that we're pasturing chickens, pigs, a um, little bit of lambs. We're, we're pretty small. So very different from the large feedlots that sometimes we drive past heading east, especially. No, not at all. Yeah, ours are much smaller. We're going to be doing a fraction of the, the number of animals. I understand you practice something called rotational livestock management, uh, sometimes also associated with regenerative agriculture. Explain what that's about. Yeah, so our practices are going to be based on rotating animals through the pastures and and letting the pastures rest between the animals being out foraging and, and taking advantage of, of being outside. Our, our mindset is to, to really utilize the, the natural habitat and try to create a system that really matches the way that the, the animals, especially chickens and pigs, uh, are meant to be to be raised. Can you talk a little bit about the sustainable meat industry here in Colorado? How important is it to the state's economy? It's a big part of you know farming and ranching in Colorado. It's a growing segment. So in terms of you know the economy, I think it's a small segment, but it is growing. And as the consumer base decides that this is what they want, uh, we are starting to see an increase in demand year after year. One thing that puts sustainably raised meat out of reach for many Coloradans is the cost. It is, of course, a lot more expensive than conventionally raised meat. Why is that? And what are the barriers to reducing that cost so that this higher quality product would be more accessible? When it comes to the price of sustainable um, and regenerative ag products, when it comes to meat in particular, when you, when you see those prices, I think there's a lot of sticker shock at first, but people don't quite understand that our, our products aren't the same as, you know, you can't compare them side by side with, with a lot of the meat and eggs that you find in the grocery stores. When, when they're raised certain ways, you have, you have nutrient density differences, you have quality differences, and you have flavor differences. And part of, part of the problem right now is Industrial agriculture is subsidized, you know, greatly through through the federal government. And so it doesn't reflect the true price points that it takes to raise these animals and produce the products. And so once people decide that it's important that they're eating quality meat, that's when we start to see people understanding that you, you really do get what you pay for. Advocates for a more plant-based diet tout the health and environmental benefits, as well as the horror of industrial agriculture's treatment of animals, to make a case for the plant-based lifestyle. As a sustainable meat producer, how do you respond to those arguments? Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think people should be eating vegetables and I think they should be out eating, you know, a balanced diet. Um, we're, we're advocates of maybe don't eat as much meat and maybe eat better meat. It's the quality over quantity theory. Um, if you're gonna be eating meat, you should be eating the good stuff. 
Now, when it comes to plant-based diets, I think to each their own. Um, one of the things that that I hear a lot is, you know, how good the the Impossible Burger or some of these lab-grown meats are. But I think people forget those don't just come out of thin air. Those have to come from soybeans, peas, different protein sources that are vegetable-based that are being grown on mass scales, you know, using monoculture, um, agriculture, and monocropping across the country. How many pesticides, insecticides, herbicides are, you know, applied to these fields uh, due to this new demand? Is that better for the environment? Is that better for our immune systems and things like that? I, I, I'd say no, it, it really isn't. What really people ought to be doing is supporting the, the ranchers and farmers that are rotating their, their animals through grass and uh, they're capturing carbon through better grass growth and, and healthier fields and topsoil retention. Those are the ways that I think that we could have a better environmental um, stewardship and then having you know healthier people. Aaron Rice is owner and operator of Jodar Farms in Wellington. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up in just a moment, we'll get a different take on the alternative meat industry in Colorado. And later in the show, we'll visit a beloved tourist attraction near Morrison that's reopening just in time for the long weekend. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Over the last few years, companies that produced plant-based meat alternatives have seen tremendous growth. And the consumer interest isn't just coming from folks who are vegetarians and vegans. As more becomes known about the climate impacts of traditional meat production, some people are trying to scale back how much meat they consume. Many of the well-known meatless meats are made with plant-based proteins. But one boulder-based company, Meaty Foods, is crafting meat alternatives from fungi, more specifically from the multi-celled vegetative part of a fungus called mycelium. The company recently signed a lease on a new 76,000-square-foot space in Thornton after securing around $18 million to finance the expansion. To get a better sense of the changing industry around meat and meat alternatives, and for more on how mycelium-based food is made, we spoke with Tyler Huggins, co-founder and CEO of Meaty Foods. So I want to talk about the alternative meat market at large, but first I need to wrap my head around your mycelium-based food. For the listeners at home, we're not quite talking about, you know, toadstools or like a supermarket portobello. It's based out of this stuff called mycelium. Explain what that is. Yeah, so you can think of mycelium as like the muscular root structure of mushrooms. So we all know the mushroom cap, that's the above ground structure, but down below in the soil is this thread-like structure that you know helps provide nutrients um, and is really the main body of, of the fungi. And actually, you know, mushrooms themselves are made of mycelium that goes above ground. So we've been consuming mycelium um, ever since we've been eating mushrooms. Uh, it's just our particular type doesn't produce fruiting bodies, the mushroom cap, and it is packed full of protein. So it has the same amino acid profile as, as beef plus a ton of fiber and other vitamins and minerals that really make it even in a more nutritional um, source of, of protein than, than your traditional um, you know, mushrooms you find at the grocery store. And so you said your mycelium process doesn't result in any fruiting bodies. Kind of explain in as much detail as you can, knowing that you've got a proprietary process, how the sort of sausage is made, so to speak. We grow our mycelium um, in, in our what we call our urban ranches. And essentially, it looks like a, a brewery. Um, using a lot of the same equipment. So we 
basically provide it this very clean, uh, nutrient-rich environment uh, that it, it basically grows in and super fast. So this process takes li literally overnight. So 12 to 18 hours from, you know, the original start of the process to the very end where, you know, as we know, cows take up to up to two years before harvesting. So incredibly fast growth of production. Then we essentially harvest it and use, you know, very simple, just forming processes in order to, to produce the finished good that looks like a, a steak and a chicken breast. So really these urban ranches look like a combination of a brewery and a, like a cheese factory together. Products like yours really have been like a flashpoint in the state lately and maybe over the last five, 10 years. And a few years ago, as you probably know, Governor Jared Polis ate a made from plants burger at, the, at his desk at the Capitol. What do you think about that public display of approval? And, and did that positively affect the meat alternative market here in Colorado? I think it's very helpful. I don't think it should be this all or nothing us for STEM sort of mentality. So my parents own a, a bison ranch out in central Nebraska. I grew up in, in a rural agricultural communities. Many of my friends and families and colleagues are in you know, the, the cattle industry. We don't see them as, as the enemy. We, I, I view this as helping, you know, what we're doing is helping to create a more robust American drive protein infrastructure. Global population is going up extremely rapidly and demand for protein is going up rapidly. This growth of, you know, alternative meats isn't going to take away from that industry at all, but it provides, again, additional diversity in people's diets and diversity to our agricultural system. So I feel like we're, you know, we're part of this, just like a chicken versus beef versus pork producers, you know, we're just part of that mix. On a long enough timeline, don't consumers ultimately decide who the winners and losers are here? For sure. hundred percent. In the end, it's all going to come down to, is this an enjoyable user experience? Is it delicious? You know, is it filling? Does it satisfy this demand? And is it affordable and accessible? That's really who's going to win this, this thing in the long run is, is being able to, to satisfy all those things for consumers. Have you kind of observed attitudes changing around this in your life, in your circles, whether it's business or personal, do you think things are changing? I do. Yeah. I, again, my parents, um, I go out and visit their ranch, um, on a regular basis and I bring the product out there and I talk to them about it. And I think it's very clear that, you know, people want to have a healthier diet. I think they understand that eating, you know, uh, red meat or every night, um, probably isn't the healthiest thing for them, but it's just part of their, their way of life. And there aren't a lot of other options. So providing another option that's enjoyable and delicious and accessible, affordable, all those great things. They're like, yeah, this sounds great. Why wouldn't I want this? So I think it's just the tone of voice. I think that's something that media we're trying to do differently is saying that like, hey, we're not here to replace animals from the supply chain. We're not trying to tell you how to eat, but here's an option. And if it works for you, then, you know, that's awesome. That's what I was hoping for. You know, we had the opportunity to build this company anywhere in the U.S. And we chose Colorado because we, one, we love the location, the work-life balance here, but we also love the people. Ultimately, uh, you know, what we're doing, we're hoping to benefit people and we hope to benefit the, the Colorado community. So, like, this is a Colorado-born company and we want to embrace that. So we're always looking to, to help and engage with, you know, other folks in the Colorado community. Tyler Huggins is the co-founder and CEO of Meaty Foods.
There's a town nestled in the foothills near Morrison, where size is a state of mind, and where some big icons of Colorado's history are getting some tiny treatment. The story of Tiny Town has its share of ups and downs, including being forced to close last summer because of the pandemic. But for those hoping to have the chance to enjoy the feeling of towering over tiny historic buildings, there's some good news. The parks operators recently announced it will be reopening this coming weekend. For a preview, we bring you this story from KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick, who visited Tiny Town in the summer of 2017. Go ahead and take your seat on the train, and then I'll punch your tickets. Reed Sundine has been a train conductor at Tiny Town for 12 years, but his history with the park dates back much farther. I came to Tiny Town as a kid. My uncle brought me up here in the, in the 1940s. Then I brought all my grandchildren up here, so uh, it's a great place for kids. The park's three locomotives alternate taking visitors around the miniaturized houses and businesses, some dating back to the early 1900s and representing real locations that are even older. Well, it has the history of Colorado all around. Uh, we got the Molly Brown House, the Lace House, which is a Victorian house in Blackhawk, Colorado, and the Maxwell Mansion, which is in Georgetown, Colorado. We have all the mines from that are up in Idaho Springs. I like that right there. Wow! Today is the first time at Tiny Town for Parker resident James Henderson and his family. I think it's neat to see how much work must have gone into each one of these buildings. Some of them are huge, uh, even though they're tiny. And uh, just the craftsmanship is really neat. I, I really appreciate that sort of thing. Getting to ride on the train was wonderful, too. My little boy is just a, a freak about trains. That's three-year-old Andrew he's referencing. This train is awesome. <laughs> Can you tell me what's, what, what sound does a train make? With out-of-state visitors from Las Vegas to entertain, Chrissy Henderson says she chose Tiny Town because she was looking for something fun for the kids and for them, too. Oh, I'd love seeing that Adams Family House. Yeah. That was that was like, oh, when we yeah. first came in, we were like, oh, that's awesome. So that was great. And the train was fun, and we had some ice cream together. And <laughs> Next to the tiny houses and the train, ice cream is the 102-year-old park's biggest draw. It's also where guests get to meet the mayor of Tiny Town. My name is Elvira Nadoma. I run Tiny Town. Nadoma is the manager and historian of Tiny Town, even writing a book for the park's 100th anniversary. She also refurbishes the houses and runs the concession stand. That's a lot of hats, or in her case, tiaras. Nadoma is never seen at Tiny Town without her signature tiara. Uh, yeah, I'm the ice cream princess. It was a joke eight years ago, and the kids won't let me forget it because if they come in here and they see no crown on my head, uh-oh. But when it comes to preserving Tiny Town's history, Nodoma takes things pretty seriously. There are more than 150 houses in the park, with new ones added each season. This summer, it will be a miniature version of Denver's iconic Colorado building. But not just any structure can make it in Tiny Town. We try to get historical buildings in here. Uh, I've had people, you know, want to put a tattoo parlor. That's not for kids. You know, uh, I'm very picky. But Tiny Town wasn't always Tiny Town. As train conductor Reed Sundine likes to tell writers, the park was first known as Turnerville, named after its owner. George Turner started uh, this uh, in 1915, and uh, he brought his daughter up here. He had a moving company, and she had no one to play with, so he began to build her little houses. Turnerville opened to the public in 1920 and became an instant hit, drawing more than 20,000 visitors each year. It wasn't always smooth sailing. 
Flooding from nearby Turkey Creek heavily damaged the park in 1929 and 1932. A fire destroyed many of the buildings three years after that. Then in 1948, Highway 285 was rerouted, taking with it a lot of potential visitors. Amid dwindling attendance, after several attempts to sell the property and no offers, Tiny Town closed in 1966. Over the next 20 years, the park was reopened and closed several more times. But in 1987, the Northern Colorado chapter of the Institute of Real Estate Management decided to take on the homes of Tiny Town as a civic project. That's how Elvira Nadoma, a former real estate agent, first found herself in Tiny Town. Now for almost, let's see, 1990, uh, for over 20 years now, this place has been open and will never close for the children again. One. Two, real loud. Three. Good job, kids. For KUNC, I'm Stacy. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.